everyone. Welcome to the Fuel the Fight podcast. We have a repeat guest, Dr. Ed Thomas. Uh, the last episode was so great. We, we got to go back for more. We get to dig in. And particularly what we get to dig in is on that restorative and martial arts degree program and, and how you stood that up, Ed. So, so welcome to the show. Well, good to be back, sir. It was called the Rama concept. And it stood for restorative and martial arts. The physical training that we inherited from the Swedes and the Germans and all of them, they wrapped their trainings around this notion that there were three content areas that they had to develop. I call them restorative, martial, and pedagogical. They were also known as military, medical, and pedagogical. So pedagogy are the sports and the games and the theory and the dance. And then the martial are techniques that allow an individual to respond appropriately to various levels of aggression. And then restorative arts are techniques that bring the body toward its optimal state of harmony and compensate for the stresses of daily life. And because we were a degree program, we could fill those three boxes with whatever we like. We didn't have to do what we were doing today. And to do that, we had to go back and look at what we had done in the past. What, do we still call it lessons learned? Yes, there's the yes. lessons center for the Army lessons learned. Yeah, the and they all got that. This was so interesting uh, to me last time. The fact that you, you did that at Fort Benning and got that buy-in. How did you come up with the idea? Because, I mean, it's novel at the time. It, it would be novel now to educate warfighters on physical fitness and, and the restorative, the militant, all like this, to get it in a degree. How did that come about? You know, I've been nurturing that seed since I was an undergraduate when I first read about the history of physical training. The Swedish system came out of Per Heinrich Ling's notion that Sweden was going to die if it didn't wake up. Its youth were sluggish. He was a literary giant as well as a fitness guy a gymnast, and he created what is known as Swedish gymnastics. He's known as the father of Western massage. These are giants, minds in the field, and I studied their work, and he had these three content areas, and I'm looking around, and I don't see the restorative, and I don't see the martial, and, except for wrestling and boxing, but this was late 60s, so martial arts still weren't back yet. We still had that anti-Asian sentiment smoldering you know, among the elders, but that's when it began, but I couldn't find any place interested. I couldn't find any schools interested for the very reasons we've discussed. Declining interest in fitness, more interest in the science. So eventually I thought, okay, just like Per Heinrich Ling, who had to go to the military, I've got to go back to the military. So I took a job in 1982 in Korea, running all the gyms up on the second ID as a civilian. I'd been there before as a soldier, so I knew the neighborhood. I'd even run a gym up there for six months. But before I went, I called Los Angeles Metropolitan College as a two-year school, and they already had a campus there, and I spoke with Dean Siguchi. And when I explained it, the, the idea, he said, well, you're describing the Japanese model. <laughs> he said, of course, I'll help you. And so I went over there, just like I did at Benning, under the wire, and I went in there, hoping to develop a degree. Well, first of all, I learned, naive as I was, that soldiers couldn't get tuition assistance for studying two content areas, religion and physical education. Try that on. Couldn't get tuition assistance. Religion, church, and state. 
P.E., a waste of time. We're not going to spend money teaching you to play volleyball. So we had to go with a recreation leadership degree, a two-year degree, and we got it. General Johnson, division commander, asked me to go on. He told me to go on a helicopter ride with him and look at all the gyms, but he wanted to talk to me about what to do about readiness. And I explained to him my idea, and then I found out he was a PE major. And the lights went on immediately, so he greased the wheels. So we got the degree going, and it was very successful, but I was unsatisfied with the two-year degree. So I came back, and I went up to, in 85, to Fort Sheridan, where the recruiting command was located, and we did a graduate undergrad course where we looked at all of this, and we wrote a document. And the document laid out the plan for Fort Benning. So I went down there and had this document in my hand, and then a paper trail, and then I started the thing all over again, the whole process of of building support and getting all all the required paperwork done, and that was it. And then we had all the instructors you could dream of. People would line up to come and teach there for the weekend. Our weekend courses were as popular as our evening courses. So we could crank out a one-semester-hour course over a weekend, and we could bring in martial artists from all over the country. And, uh, and that's what we did. And, and also restorative arts, and, and we brought in historians. The one thing that made the degree unique is that we didn't ignore science. We had the minimum amount of scientific theory, and then we had space to build the history and philosophy. And when you put a group of people that smart in a room, <laughs> you're, you're going to get nothing but success, and that's what happened. So how is the curriculum split out? So you have restorative, you have the militant, and then you have the history. Was it all like one-third, one-third, or was one more uh, heavily researched than the other? I think the the theoretical was a little heavier because in physical education, unfortunately, hands-on training isn't valued as much as sitting in a chair and talking about it. So we had to do that. We just spend more time in class on the one-hour courses and the two-hour courses, which was great because they loved it. It was just a matter of figuring out how we could do it when they had time. Then we started giving them uh, choices. They began creating concepts. We had these special topics courses. The one I remember was the MPs helped us. We did a 48-hour surveillance course. The first day was all theory, how it's done. They stayed up all night. We had one aggressor force. The MPs were tracking us, trying to find us. So it really was an on-post operation in surveillance and that attracted law enforcement so we were constantly building concepts to a higher level but we were also making sure that we were looking at fitness changes that our soldiers even though they were really highly fit we were showing that they could even go higher how are you assessing that were you using the apft or did you have your own sort of assessments when i was an undergrad i was studying under the students of a guy by the name of charles h mccloy who was an expert in anthropometry, which is what we call test and measurement. So I was immersed in test and measurement while most of my peers weren't because test and measurement was losing ground very quickly after after the World War II guys started to fade away. So when I got down there, I had a lot of different fitness tests. We were also doing qualitative fitness, which I think is as important as quantitative. In other words, when you do mass training, we videotape them like you saw on Via Militaris. Then they study the videos. And by studying the video, they can see the technical mistakes they're making. 
and that allowed them to go on to a more complex movement. So we saw increasingly more complex motor skills because we were focusing on the quantitative evaluations. And that was also something we talked about earlier, that physical fitness seems to be the primary test, but motor fitness is probably a, a more functional, higher-level assessment to give. Right. So you actually had somebody assessing their quality of movement, not whether you know they got to point A to point B in a certain amount of time or did X, Y, and Z. It was how did that movement look compared to what the standard was you gave them? Yeah. More importantly, they were looking at each other. They were learning from one another. And the other way we were able to reach higher levels of fitness was to follow these three basic rules, progression, variety, and precision. And the other thing was teaching them how to teach others. And that sounds so simple, but it isn't. Number one, how do you manage, you know what it's like, how do you manage 100 soldiers on the field or 100 law enforcement out there? How do you get them to all move beautifully at one time? And the other reason, the other thing we did was you never train to failure. Never train to where the technical quality is compromised. And that's hard to learn. Right. Yeah. No, that, that's all good stuff. Going back, we, we talked a little about that qualitative assessment, looking at the, the movement. How did it look? And, and, you know, keeping the integrity of the, the movement. But then for the quantitative assessments, what type of assessments? You said you, you had a bunch kind of in your toolkit. Did you use what, what physical assessments did you use? We began giving the World War II physical fitness test across the Army to units and then putting it out there and they began taking it. We began in the ranger community and they did okay. But they found a lot of the, they found some of the stuff difficult and challenging. But then we got out, say, to the mechanized units and the failure rates were high. We had one platoon, was it? Not one soldier even got to the bottom of the runtime for the World War II soldier. They were off the bottom of the chart in terms of time. It made the New York Times. The old army was more fit, I think, was the article. It's still online somewhere. No, and I, I, I wrote an article uh, using that exact same test and, and uh, you know, basically said your grandpa could kick your butt. This was in, I think, 20, <laughs> 2014 because, you know, I use the example of pull-ups because I do remember this from the test, and I'll put a link to the test in the show notes. But I, I think core for pull-ups was six which is a standard now to get in, you know, Ranger Regiment and a lot of like assessments and selection programs. Good was like 12 and the max that you had to do 20 pull-ups. A lot of, a lot of soldiers today show me, you know, they can do 20 clean pull-ups or just, you know, the fact that 12 was the average. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a challenging test. It, it was. And all we have to do is look back at those times and see what they did. If you look at a soldier today, and we talked about this in the last interview, I estimate here in Iowa, 95% of our children have forward neck, rounded shoulders by around second grade. That will never go away. That will get worse and worse. And then just today, I read another article confirming that around 35 is as fit as we're ever gonna be. And then we begin to see the impact of gravity on an unaligned body. If the body's not optimally aligned, then gravity is just going to continually squeeze it. Even the brain settles in the cavity of the skull as we get older. The organs fall downward and forward. Every moment of our lives, gravity is changing us. Dr. Martin, the fellow who invented the inversion boots, one of my mentors used to say, 
Gravity is the potter's hand, and we are living clay. And in order to grow in harmony with nature, we have to turn our body relative to gravity's force so that we can be molded into pure and upright human beings. We lost all that. That's why he was ostracized when he said it in the 80s, because we quit doing all this gymnastics stuff probably around, well, in my in here in Iowa, it was the late 60s. They took all the stuff out of our high school gyms, and we quit doing it. So not today, though. Now you see Ninja Warrior. You, you see more and more playgrounds building this stuff. This is all brand new again. So Dr. Martin, what's called brachiation, he called it brachiation, but hanging from the limbs, leaning backward, turning upside down. So we were able to implement all of that as part of our training. Mm -hmm. uh, our commandant was all over this. He got a master's in our program eventually. And that's where the heel hook all came from. But it got, you know, it got a little off course and it turned into what it did. But uh, the notion of hanging and then moving, that's where it all came from out of that degree program. Nice. And, and so th those might be some of the assessments. You, know, you had the World War II assessment. You mentioned the heel hook. So, you know, we call them like heel claps at Ranger Regiment. So it's just you're, you're holding a bar and you're bringing your legs up and over and touching your feet together over the bar. Right. Because everybody was talking about a new fitness test back then. And the question came up, what would take the place of the sit up? We've been talking about the damage a sit up does to your back for years and years and years. Uh, but I said, well, and I think it was um, Bob Hoffman, but I can't remember. I'm pretty sure it was. He was asked, what would he do for what we would call the core if he had no other exercise? I think it was him. And he said, I would hang from a bar, and then I would bring my knees up just like that very slowly at first. Of course, then you roll up, and eventually you roll over. There are different ways to get up to the top of the bar, under the bar, side. There are all these different mounts on a, on a high bar. So it never was intended to just be some struggle to do a whole bunch of them. It's a lead up to getting to, to climbing something. And that's what I would start with. Then you have to teach how to spot it. Well, I left before any of that ever was done. And, and it, it became what it did today. A bit confused about what it's for and what it does. And Right. Yeah. So the closest to what a leg tuck is it would be the best way to describe what we had uh, currently. And although it's not in the Army Combat Fitness Test now, we replaced it with a plank. do want to point out, I think it's climbing uh, drill one. It's still in there. So it's, it's still as part of that. But, but the overall thought was, you know, anybody who's jumped up on a rope, you know, and you got to get up on a rope, you're going to have to get your feet over that rope eventually and hook it. So if you can't get your feet up and, uh, you know, hook it to get up that rope, Good luck. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna have a hard time uh, uh, getting on that rope. Um, but I tell you what broke my heart and motivated me to leave the fitness school. I had been talking about all of this since I got there in '93 that we don't train off the ground, and you can't just do it. These guys who built this equipment, like all the off the ground stuff the army uses today, were were masters of this stuff. You've got to teach it step by step. And these poor soldiers coming in, many of them haven't been off the ground. So enter Private Adam Larson. I came into work one day, had to be around 2000, and our commandant said we have to get out to Sand Hill right away, went out, and the uh, oxygen thing is still on the ground. Adam Larson's dead, climbed up the, the, uh, the slide for life, right. hung there for a moment, 
doesn't have enough core strength to get his legs around a two-inch rope. It's got to be a one-and-a-half. Look at any manual. And he hung there for a moment, fell, died. And uh, I was on the, what they call the tiger team or whatever they mm -hmm. call it. That's what brought a change. They started putting the nets under all the obstacles. Uh, it was all happening about that time. But I realized that we were not going to rebuild, at least not while I was there. It would take more time than I had, uh, the off-the-ground. And now there's more off-the-ground stuff. It's back to what we said earlier. We have the materials again. Now have to develop the methods, the teaching methods. And how do you pass that on? I think it's a great opportunity because the Internet is magic. Here we are talking across great distance. Anything you like if you had the right facility. And all we have to do is know what to teach. So, so with that, how can somebody, if they're, they're listening to this, and they want to start kind of instructing their soldiers in more of the off-the-ground training, where would you recommend they go to start out to find out about this? There is no place. You have to build it. The Army cannot look to the civilian sector for help on this. You can't go there. You can't go to your local university. We just have to understand that there's a huge world out there dealing with how human beings evolve. And it's right in front of us. It's in these old manuals and in these old magazines. And, and I was writing some notes earlier about all the different ways this could be done. We used off-duty education before as our delivery system. But I think also another way now is MWR. Or it could even be a dedicated facility, a video production facility, a thousand square feet with some beams up there to put the right stuff up and start developing content methodologies that we can send out across the army and start producing all of this stuff and it won't impact at all on what we're doing now it's not an indictment of what you're doing but don't destroy everything you have today one of the keys to the old system is everybody had to have a piece of equipment and you take it out on the field and you train with it like a weighted bar so that translates into bayonet training or field expedient weapons training but it's basically a fitness device, which leads to those combat motor skills. When I moved to Iowa in 2001, our schools didn't have anything. And I was trying to change the schools. So I started buying it out of my pocket. And I had a professorship at a university. So I, I never married. I've got lots of money. I just started throwing it all into equipment and donating it to these young teachers out there that wanted to move to more complex fitness stuff. But I took early retirement before I could give it all away. I'm sitting on probably 150 med balls, 300 sets of clubs, 150 weighted bars, three to nine pounds. It's like a hoarder. I mean, it's, it's, if I die, it's going to be storage wars. It's going to ever get a real kick out of it. So I have three huge storage units filled with brand new equipment. This is all in the box stuff. Perform better quality. I have a thousand square feet of mat that work either for tumbling, uh, body work, or combatives. Beautiful, uh, Olympic quality, high level, interlocking. Got all that stuff I want to donate. And then you've seen a, a picture of all the books. There's probably an action research center somewhere, maybe a lessons learned for fitness. Do you think there's there's space now for another iteration of the Rama degree? And, and what would that look like? If you went with a degree, it would only work in those units that can sustain the numbers unless you did it online with an on-site presence. So you could have a small on-site presence 
and that would lead to an online degree, but it could also just be recreation. But, but of course, a degree is such a, an incentive. And then the promotion points and all that that go with it. I think there are probably schools out there with leaders now who get exactly what I'm saying. They're younger. Young to me is anybody under 50. <laughs> at this point maybe even 60 at this point they're old enough to have power but young enough now to have lived in a world that embraces fitness i remember calling perform better and you've been to their summits they were a leader in bringing all this functional equipment and helping to define it to the united states and i called chris poyer the manager and i told him who i was and where i was and and i said i don't have enough equipment but I think what you're doing is the future. And I would you please come down and bring everything you can. And I can guarantee three things. No one's going to show up. No one's going to buy anything. I can't pay you. That was the last one. So wow. He said, okay, I'll do it. Because he really wanted to serve the military. It wasn't about the money. He was doing fine. So they brought all this old equipment down. And we were able to do this huge workshop. People did show up. We held it out at Kelly Hill. Enthusiasm was extremely high. And that was one of the things that set it off. And, and then after that, Perform Better started giving us great prices on equipment. And then I was able to start buying it and, and then presenting. That's, I think, where we met. I was a presenter. And I was making quite a bit of money going around presenting. And all that was going into equipment. So I was constantly buying more and more equipment. <laughs> no, that's that's awesome, Ed. Yeah, and, and that's a great story. And for, for Chris to do that, to get that going. Any kind of closing thoughts on, on the Rama degree and where you could see it going in the future? I would say of the Rama program or the restorative and martial arts concept, if we don't do it, we are going to pay a price. Because there's no other approach to fitness out there that comes close to those historical models. And it's not that we don't get them. We do combatives now. Matt Larson burned a completely new trail for us. And so combatives is back. And I think the, the restorative stuff is back. Look at the line between physical therapy and physical fitness and how blurred that is. Well, there was a fellow by the name of John Stanley Coulter, C-O-U-L-T-E-R, 1911 to 1922, U.S. Army Medical first director of an overseas convalescent rehab hospital during World War I, a pioneer in the area of what we now call physical therapy. He wrote a book called Physical Therapy, which was a history. And what do you know? You trace it back to its origin. It's, it's the same people that created physical training and created physical education. P.H. Ling from Sweden, Friedrich Jan, that's where West Point got its fitness. He's a the German Turner founder. All these names show up. So there is some, there's a very powerful line between all this. And if we can put it all into education, I think Army Fitness would change very, very quickly without dissonance. Ed, thank you so much for that. And, and thanks, everybody, for listening to this. I, I, you always share so much knowledge. And after listening to you, always have more questions. So I'm sure we'll have another episode. We didn't, we didn't even talk about Task Force Delta, which maybe is a, you know, for, for another episode. Uh, but thanks so much for listening. And everybody who's listening to this, have all this information in the show notes. Like, subscribe, follow, so you can get more great information. Uh, with that being said, going to sign off right here.